The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this morning I would like to continue a series of talks I'm giving over this year called on the paramis, the perfections. And once a month I do one of the paramis, and this month it's the perfection of renunciation. And uh, renunciation is a big word, and I suspect most of you don't ordinarily use it in conversation. And um, when I think about it, I don't know if it's the same association for, for all, many of you, but I have a strong association with the word renunciation um, with, uh, kind of with religion. It's kind of like a, kind of a spiritual kind of thing to do. And, um, and it's uh, sometimes been said it's a very unpopular topic, uh, in the modern West, because renunciation itself uh, seems a, a kind of deprivation, and uh, many people in the West are not into deprivation. Uh, they're into, if anything, the opposite, if they had the choice. And, um, and then there's some serious questions, why should I deprive myself? Why should I do without, um, if that's uh, what's called on? Um, but I think it's a very powerful word, very con- powerful concept, and uh, because of strong association, if it is so, with uh, spirituality, um, I think it warrants a deeper look at what this word is about. It's a Western word, and it's a word that's used to translate um, nikama, uh, the Pali word that's literally means something like, it means, it's not clear what the etymology of the word is, or the meaning of the word, but it's sometimes, uh, explained as meaning going forth, going out. And uh, sometimes it's explained as, um, as uh, overcoming um, kamma, or sensual desire. So over letting go of sensual desire, renouncing sensual desire is a big one for um, at least monastics in Buddhism. And, uh, but the idea of going forth is uh, clearly stated in the text, this beautiful, I think, um, metaphor. Um, that uh, it, it contrasts going forth with a confined, dusty life. So, whereas going forth means going out into the wide open spaces. So if you imagine yourself uh, locked in a mountain cabin all winter long, a one-room cabin with all your relatives. <laughs> you know, you like your relatives, but, you know, it's, after a while it feels a little dusty, you know, confined, and challenging, maybe. And so uh, the, uh, um, and then finally, the snow thaws, the spring, and you go out into the beautiful Sierras or something, wide open pastures, and it just feels so great to be out in the wide open. It's that kind of contrast. And so, at least in Buddhism, the idea that with renunciation, there is something gained. Not, it's not about deprivation, but rather uh, the gaining of something, and it, you know, whereas renunciation kind of implies letting go of something, the uh, emphasis in Buddhism is what is gained. And there's a very famous verse uh, in the Dhammapada that uh, uh, is a little bit um, disturbing for some people to hear the first time, but I think it's a very wise and profound statement. If, by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience greater happiness. A wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. 
So some people don't like it because it seems like the emphasis is uh, selfish. You know, just, you know, if I get let go of a lesser happiness for a greater happiness, I mean, that's kind of like a selfish desire, right? You know, for myself. But uh, the, um, the emphasis in Buddhism is to move from that, uh, the, the, the uh, you know, if you think of your life as a, as a big continuum, from that side of the continuum where you suffer to that side of the continuum where you don't suffer, where you're happy, where you're peaceful. Or to help other people out of your compassion to go from uh, that, the, 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 the extreme side of the, that side of the continuum where we're unhappy to that where we're happy. So, it's, so it requires understanding what happiness is. Buddhism puts a great emphasis on kind of uh, what's possible in this lifetime, what's possible in terms of freedom from suffering, uh, the attainment of happiness. And liberation, awakening, freedom is considered to be the mahasukha, the great happiness. And so renunciation is meant to serve the process of attaining this great happiness for you and for others as well. So in that context, then, we renounce something which, you know, sometimes we renounce things which are quite fine. There's nothing wrong with certain things that we can decide to give up, but we can't do it all. And one of the, one of the neuroses of uh, many people in the modern West is an excess of choices and, um, and, or ex- ex- excessive messages. You're supposed to have it all, get it all, do it all. And, um, and um, it's a kind of suffering with that just as it's this kind of suffering not to have choices and you know, not to be able to decide what to do with one's life. The, um, um, and many, in many endeavors in life, uh, it's quite recognized that, it's use, that you have to, in order to do one thing well, or do a few things well, you have to let go and not do other things that in, in other situations would be quite normal to do. Um, someone who go, decides to go to college, to go to junior college, for example, to get a uh, you know, to get a job. Well, going to going to college means that you can't. You know, you can fill in the blank, whatever it is. You know, but there's a lot of things you can't do because uh, you have to focus on on what you're studying. Um, or some people uh, decide to have children, and only then they decide they realize afterwards that. <laughs> <laughs> that this requires a certain degree of renunciation. (laughs) And certain things that you're used to doing, you can't do. So you have to kind of focus on this thing for a while. Um, And then we have extreme examples, you know, of someone who really wants to excel in something, in sport or in arts or music or in a career. Sometimes they really choose to really focus on that for for a long period of time to really excel. And I think most people who excel really far in almost any endeavor have made that choice, made a choice that really focus on that and at the expense maybe of letting go of other things which are perfectly okay. And sometimes it's done inappropriately. Sometimes it's done so that um, we, bec- we become kind of, uh, um, you know, not whole as a human being. Sometimes it's done at the expense at, uh, for our family and friends who are sometimes hurt because of it. It's not uncommon for... Um, you know, for family to be neglected by people who really excel and do great things in their lives because they're focusing so much on that. Um, the, um, but still, this idea is, you know, I think it's an ordinary part of human life, this idea that choosing one thing over another. So this is what the quote is talking about. 
So then we come to Buddhism, and Buddhism emphasizes renunciation. This parami emphasizes renunciation. And, um, and it's, it's in its list called the Ten Perfections, which are ten beautiful virtues of, that come from a very beautiful motiva- two beautiful motivations that people can have. Their motivations and approaches to life which, if anything, is considered sacred in Buddhism, is one of the, some of the most sacred things. Compassion is really kind of, having to be motivated and moved by compassion is, you know, is a very highly regarded, beautiful phenomenon in the human heart. And liberation, freedom, awakening, is also a beautiful capacity and potential and experience of the heart and of the mind that we have. And so these two beautiful things are linked with renunciation in the list of the paramis, the perfections. In order for renunciation to be a parami, to be one of these perfections, it explicitly has to be connected to the motivation, the concern, the interest in compassion for others and in liberation for oneself and others, or compassion for all, for yourself as well. So because of that, that's a protection from renunciation being some kind of world-denying, depriving kind of uh, stance where you're supposed to kind of you know, the more you suffer, the better it is for everyone. And I just, you know, might as well just kind of live a poor, deprived life. Um, it's supposed to actually make you kind of, a, you know, it's a beautiful virtue. And I think of this kind of, all these ten paramis as they grow in a person, makes a person strong, makes a person noble, makes a person kind of a large person. A maha, maha sattva is a term for some of the people who really engage in this path of the paramis. They become a great being. And that's a little odd language because, uh, for Buddhists because many people associate Buddhism with um, becoming, you know, with not-self. <clears throat> and not-self must mean that I'm supposed to be totally, completely self-effacing <clears throat> and selfless and, um, and humble and, you know, like I don't count. Um, the teachings on selflessness is not meant to be something that squashes the vitality and energy and motivations of our life. It's supposed to refine it and clarify it so there's no clinging connected to it. There's no selfishness connected to it. But being free of selfishness does not mean that you kind of become a wimp. <laughs> or become some, you know, kind of... Uh, so the idea of a mahasattva, a great being. Uh, so uh, it's a quality of these great beings to be able to, to have renunciation. It's a virtue. Um, so the question then, in terms of this parami, is how, what do we look at that we can let go of? What parts of our life where the letting go of it clearly is a compassionate act, supporting for other people? And how do we look at the, our, our life and understand how letting go of something is clearly helping us to become liberated? Um, often com- compassion has a lot to do with generosity, being supportive and giving our time and effort and supporting other people. And if you're holding on tight to your own time, your own things, uh, it's very hard to be, to be compassionate. So the idea of being able to let go in order to support other people is often connected to compassion. And in the same way, if you're holding on tight to your things, to your time, your being, your comfort, and all these things, um, it's hard to be liberated because the clinging to those things is the opposite of liberation. So, so to renounce, supports the process of letting go. There are, two, there are a number of reasons why um, uh, in Buddhism we emphasize 
renunciation. Uh, one is because if we're clinging to something, if we're addicted to something, we're being harmed by it. And so we renounce in order to let go of the harming that gets done. And some people need to renounce a really strong, powerful act of renunciation that's witnessed by other people so they really get into it because their addiction to certain behaviors is so powerful, they need help. And, um, and some kind of public, even ritual, some, 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 some way that really powerfully helps them to renounce and stick to it. it sometimes it's very essential for certain addictive pers- uh, uh, behaviors. And, and just in Buddhism, we think that everyone's addicted. <laughs> uh, not uh, necessarily to what we conventionally think is addiction, but anybody who meditates, I think, realizes quickly that they're addicted to thinking. You know. And so how do we overcome that addiction? And sometimes, what, what do we have to renounce? What do we have to let go of, at least psychologically, so that our mind can be free from its obsessions, its preoccupations, its concerns. It's a very interesting question. Uh, so one side of renunciation is the fact you know, of letting go of something which is causing harm for us, ourselves and for the world around us. The other side, is, which I've already talked about, is a side of renouncing because it's beneficial. And, um, and it can be beneficial in a number of ways. Uh, one way is that it's beneficial because we, then we can pick up something that's better to do. We can get involved in something that we, we prefer to do, something that's better for the world, better for ourselves. Another a very interesting act, which is the, the discipline of renunciation, is that uh, sometimes it's really useful to, at least temporarily, renounce something that might even be really a perfectly fine thing to do, but to stop doing it for a while so you can understand what your relationship to that thing is. Because there might be a lot of uh, uh, subtle attachments, a lot of beliefs, a lot of assumptions, a lot of sense of self connected to it. They were really good to flush out and see clearly. And it's hard to see it if you keep acting on it normally, as you normally would. By not doing it for a while, you see. So, for, uh, for example, um, some people find this going, by going on retreats, meditation retreats, where, which are kind of like temporary renunciation retreats. We don't advertise it that way because you know, people wouldn't come, maybe. But you know, but they come, you know, come to Spirit Rock. You know, our new retreat center, we can call it you know, the Renunciation Center. <laughs> you know, come and renounce for ten days, and um, no one will come. <laughs> but um, but basically, what it is, because uh, when you go. When you go on retreat, for example, you renounce ordinary social conversation. And that's part of the deal, coming on silent retreat. And some people don't discover how addicted or how caught up or how involved they are in social conversation and all the different beliefs, assumptions, feelings, reactions that go into social conversation. And it can be quite a challenge for people to negotiate the first days of a silent retreat if they've never been on it because of all the different kind of, you know, the powerful forces within us that come into play through speech. So a small example would be, um, some people find their security, that they're safe with other people, by being able to be in conversation with them and know that, uh, you know, they kind of present themselves in a certain way, they get feedback in a certain way. And when you're not talking, that ordinary way of finding yourself safe with people isn't possible. 
In fact, if you go and retreat and sit down at the dining room table with you know, six, seven, eight other people at the table, um, you know, or in ordinary life, when you sit down with people at a table, they, they, you know, even if they're strangers, they look up and say hello or smile or you know, you know, say here, please. Um, you sit down at a retreat table with seven or eight strangers, and um, they look at their oatmeal. <laughs> and they, you know, they don't say anything. They don't even look at you. And, and so if you're used to the social cues that, you know, and if you use, if you use worldly social cues for people looking at their oatmeal when you sit down at the table, it's not good news. <laughs> you know, this is, these people don't, you know, don't want you there. But that's not what it means on retreat. And so people sit down and they, they see that they're, that they're operating on, you know, there's, there's constant vigilance looking and checking and, and, and getting reassurance and wanting to find out what's going on that's always operating. Sometimes it's really needed in society. There's good reasons for it. But sometimes it's not needed. And on retreat, that's supposed to be one place where it's not needed. And you can put that part of our life to rest. And it's a beautiful thing to put it to rest. But you don't necessarily see how that operates unless you've renounced it for a while. So the same thing can be true with a lot of different things. It could be around food. Sometimes on retreats, people renounce eating in the afternoon after 12 o'clock. And a lot of food issues can come up. And not all our issues and beliefs around food are so wise. And so sometimes you can see that if you, you know, have renounced eating after 12 o'clock. Um, there's the issue of, uh, of renouncing sexuality, which uh, also happens on retreats. Um, you know, come to Spirit Rock and renounce sex for 10 days, please. And that's what we do. You expect it to be celibate while you're there. And so some people, it becomes a big deal. Um, they've never had to kind of actually not be sexual, either privately or with someone else for that long of a t- long time. And so a lot of the beliefs, ideas, expectations, and sexual behavior is one of the most complex social activities that any human being does. It's, it's infused with not just desire, but with all kinds of beliefs and assumptions that are socially conditioned and family conditioned. It's a very complex event. And one of the ways to kind of begin teasing apart some of that is, is to renounce it for a while. And uh, then you can see what goes on. So part of the value of renunciation sometimes is this heightened awareness. It shows us uh, the, what's going on in a clearer way than if we just freely do whatever we want. But sometimes renunciation is a way of, of you know, getting something, uh, in, in some improvement. You know, being able to pick up some greater happiness or do something but greater good. I wanted to give you an example of a little act of letting go that I like to mention. It's, I'm fond of this little story, so that's why I've said it a few times. I'll tell, but I'll expand on it this time, so those of you who heard before will hear something new. <laughs> um, many years ago, I was visiting Abhayagiri, the monastery where Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasno used to be abbots, with a group of people in the middle of the week. And, um, and it's sometimes a custom when you go to a monastery to bring something, to bring an offering of food or something. And so I knew that back then they didn't, they sometimes didn't have a lot of food up there. And so I went to the market and loaded up several bags full of dry goods, you know, rice and pasta and canned foods and different things they could just keep because I knew that when, uh, you know, on the weekend they got a lot of food, had a lot of visitors, but during the week there wasn't much food. So I thought I'll just fill them up so they have for some days and, you know, whenever they need it. 
And uh, I didn't think too much about it. It just seemed like a nice thing to do. And, um, and I went with this group of people who also brought food. And then there was time for the meal. They had the main meal of the day. And so we were all sitting in a room together. And the way, it, I didn't know how it worked at this particular monastery, but the way it worked was that um, everybody was sitting quietly in the eating room. And then people from the kitchen would carry in each of the dishes for that meal and announce who had donated, donated it that day. And so they started listing the names of all the people that had come up with. You know, the group of, the, the five, six people we'd gone up there with who all brought, actually they had brought cooked food. I didn't bring cooked food, I brought dry goods for the next days. So it didn't take me long to realize that uh, everyone's name was going to be announced. So-and-so brought this, so-and-so brought this. And here I was sitting, you know, and inside of me was just, I felt like I wanted to jump up and say, but, but, I brought things too. <laughs> but I brought dry goods. <laughs> They're in the kitchen. Uh, you know, and uh, I could see this kind of agitation, this kind of concern, this fear of how I'm going to be judged by other people and going on. And um, so I felt, look, this wasn't really appropriate, you know. I mean, this is not the place to, you know, show my, how wonderful I am, you know. <laughs> At a Buddhist monastery where you're supposed to renounce your conceit. So I let go, and like, it was a little bit, you know, it took a little effort to let go, that energy, that moving up. But, you know, but this is interesting. But part of the reason I let go was also because I knew that if I did stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, I brought something, that people would see me as being conceited then. So it wasn't just because I was letting go because I thought it was wise to let go, but I was also protecting myself from being judged. <laughs> I couldn't win. <laughs> I, was, I was caught in either way. I was playing the self game. So... Um, so how do we, so, so, you know, I had to let go, you know, I realized I had to let go in deeper and deeper layers, uh, not even being concerned one way or the other what people thought about me. And this idea of attachment to self-concept, self-image, how people see us, is a very deep one for many people. And for me, um, there was a time in my, my practice early on, maybe, where, I guess I've been practicing for about seven years, six, seven years, and I could see that I was holding on to some sense of self, that it was dif- difficult to let go of, but that it was appropriate to let go of. It, was, it wasn't really help, helping me, it wasn't really helping me be happy to, uh, to, to cherish and hold on to this self-concept, to try to prove, this self, prove who I was to people around me. But I had a hard time letting go of it. So I said, I need a ritual. So the ritual I made for myself was I was going to go to the second time to practice um, in Asia in Thailand and Burma. And so I told myself, when I cross the international date line, <laughs> that's where I'm going to let go. And so I prepared myself. I was flying over the Pacific and you know, just you know, looking and figuring. And, um, and uh, you know, there's something, something inside of me, some, some, something, kind of got reset slightly. And not so much that I could let go of my conceit so easily, but uh, I think it was more like, I, I, I didn't let go necessarily so completely, but it's more like I changed direction. I kind of, okay, this is, I'm, I'm focusing my life on something else now. I'm not going to focus on 
strengthening the conceit, I'm going to focus now on letting go of it. So it's kind of a change of direction that happened, thanks to the international dateline. Um, I think it's interesting to look at the difference between letting go and renunciation. Because uh, letting go is a big part of Buddhist practice because freedom is freedom from clinging. So it's letting go of clinging. That is really at the heart of what Buddhism is all about. But the, um, but you know, there can be a single moment of letting go. So I could have been sitting there at the monastery eating room and I could have let go of my impulse to scream and say, hey, wait a minute, me too, I brought things. But I could also look at it more deeply that there's this common tendency in me to want to toot my horn, is that the idea? You know, it's kind of... And, um, and this, is that, this doesn't help me, it doesn't help the world around me. Uh, so rather than just let going of, letting go of it this time, let me kind of uh, uh, make a choice here or, or an act which tries to do it much more uh, ongoingly in my life. And renunciation is this kind of sense of, I think, of this kind of, let me do it on an ongoing basis, not just in this particular situation, but let me try to uh, turn my life in a different direction so I do this in an ongoing way. Let me renounce uh, gossiping, for example. It's one thing to stop gossiping today, you know, this particular situation, but maybe you realize the way I gossip is not helpful for me or for other people. And I'm going to think I'll renounce gossiping. Or I'm going to renounce uh, exaggerating. Or I'm going to exa- uh, renounce lying. Or I'm going to re- renounce uh, some people, you know, it could be things like television. I'm going to renounce television. I've known people who've done that. And they feel quite happier doing it. Wow, I didn't realize I had so much time. I've had people tell me, you know, I don't have any time for meditation. And then I said, how much time do you watch television? And then their eyes go wide. <laughs> and um, so the, the Latin uh, roots for the word renou- renounce uh, is to announce again, to tell again. And there's something, you know, something like this public statement, this kind of clear kind of standing behind something, not just letting go, but clearly kind of announcing it, uh, clarifying it, claiming it, um, being behind it. And I think it's one of the beautiful things in life, uh, when it's done appropriately and healthily, to have a very strong motivation for something and, and set the course. Um, this is what I'm going to do, to make a commitment to it. And, um, and let the commitment override some of the ways we get distracted, some of the ways we get pulled left and right by other interests or attachments. But really making commitment. And so classically in Buddhism, renunciation is seen as a commitment. Let me commit myself to let go of certain things for the benefit of others and for the benefit of me. And so the challenge for all of you, if you're so inclined, is to reflect, consider, what would be useful for you to renounce? in a clear, committed way. What would be helpful for you to renounce? What would be beneficial for you and for the world around you, for your family, for your friends, for your society, to renounce, to let go of in some clear, ongoing way? And if you make that choice, that commitment, what do you learn about yourself in that process? 
What do you have to clarify? What do you have to kind of understand? What do you have to work through? It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. And I think it's really beautiful. I think it's really beautiful the people who want to do that inner work, the clarifying work, to be able to live a life that uh, really serves us and serves others. Um, and I would hope that um, uh, renunciation, letting go in a Buddhist sense, is really for the betterment of ourselves and better for betterment of the world. It lets us um, better express our compassion and uh, better live from a place where our heart is free and not contracted or constricted. So I hope that um, that has inspired you around this word renunciation, that if you hear it again in the, in the Buddhist context, again in the future, it'll make you smile. Oh yeah, this is a good thing. And if um, that didn't happen, doesn't happen because of this talk, then I've failed. <laughs> and I'll, but since I've renounced my concern about <laughs> what you think about me, <laughs> it's okay to fail sometimes. So, um, any comments or questions you'd like to make? We have a couple of minutes. Protests. It's just a a comment that I think you left, you did not mention how freeing renunciation can be, that there's an incredible lifting the heart if you really accomplish it. Oh yeah, it can be very freeing. And I, I meant to say, give one little example. Um, uh, there are, it can be very freeing, definitely. I mean, that's the whole, whole uh, letting go and not clinging. Is, that's the whole idea, is freedom. But uh, on retreats, uh, uh, it's very interesting to renounce or com- commit oneself to following the schedule of the retreat, to renounce your own preferences. And one of the ways it's freeing is that... Um, if you follow the schedule, it's time to sit, it's time to, to walk in meditation, it's time to eat, it's time to sleep. Just follow it in a very matter-of-fact way. Maybe get rid of your, your, your watch and just kind of listen to the bells, and the bell says, come sit, come sit. Is then um, the, 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 the consideration, the debates, the what should I do now, what's the best thing to do now, maybe I should sit longer, maybe I should go take a walk, maybe I should take a nap, maybe I should eat, have a snack, do, 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 you know. And we, people can be constantly negotiating their desires and preferences and questions. And it's so wonderful not to do that. And say, so I'm, I'm not going to be involved in all this uh, world of preferences and choices. And, and uh, some people find it very freeing just to follow the schedule. Now, that's not supposed to mean we're supposed to be an automaton just kind of following whatever everybody else tells us. I mean, being able to choose is a very important part of life. But um, there are a variety of ways in renunciation can really freeze up energy, freeze up the mind in powerful ways. Thank you, Gil, for... Um sharing uh, your way of coming to terms with selfing and comparison in the monastic situation where you are bringing food. Um, I appreciate it, and I wanted to ask if you could take it one step further, because as you shine, as I have shined the light 
of my attention on places of comparison and found suffering and on places of mixed up intentions. There could be a multiplicity of intentions going on, some of them more noble, some of them much less noble. Um, what, what happens next? Is it enough to just know and that the light of attention will um, eventually, gradually, over many lifetimes, uh, allow it all to be noble? Or how does one parse out the less noble intentions and let them go? So there you are at the monastery and you are aware. And what happens next? Well, um, <clears throat> well I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, uh, what, do we, what do we do? I mean, mindfulness has a lot to do with investigation, looking more carefully, more deeply, what's really going on here. And that's always useful to look more deeply, find out, be mindful. And, and I did that at the time, I did it afterwards, I reflected what happened and looked at it, so that was useful. But, um, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit too easy to, if we emphasize too much just the mindfulness thing, that people end up being passive. <laughs> you, know, you know, you said many lifetimes, right? Just like, you know, I, I, I just sit here and watch until I'm pure and then I'll act. <laughs> you know, never get around to doing anything. Uh, and when people often do have mixed intentions. There can be some really beautiful pure intention that's, you know, to be helpful to someone, for example, and uh, you want to get credit for it. And you want to show the world that you're really smart or really kind and in an egotistical way. And so, what do we do? Do we, do we act or do we not act, act in that situation? And my feeling is that, um, is that I look at kind of at the, you know, if there's mixed intentions, I kind of look, try to look at them all and decide which is the, uh, most, uh, the strongest ones operating. Because if, it's, if there's a fairer degree of pure intention operating, I think it's really sad to sacrifice it because there's some impure intention. That's kind of a sad thing that this should, you know. And I think that, uh, so, you know, if, if, so if there's 30% impure, if we call it that way, and 70% pure, um, Maybe you should do it anyway, and just go along with the impure, uh, so you don't sacrifice and because you're, you're also strengthening the pure intention, and then you realize this as the impure, and you realize I need to do work there, but I'm not going to you know be frozen and not act in the world in this good way because I'm a little bit egotistical here. But if it's ninety percent impure, ninety percent you know all about me, myself, and mine, and the other person you're helping, like who's you know you couldn't care less about them really. <laughs> Um, you know, but you know, a little bit you have some, maybe a little bit care. And so maybe then, maybe you don't do it because when, it's, when the percentage is skewed towards the impure, chances are that that's going to infect what you do in some deleterious way. Is that an answer that's satisfying enough? I can work with that. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, um, thank you all. And I hope that um, your renunciation makes you a happier person. <laughs> <laughs>